Bibles to Luke chapter 9. As we continue our series through Luke, we'll look at uh, the first evangelistic mission for the apostles. Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 1 through 11. And he called together the twelve and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whatever they do not re- and whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. So far, the reading of God's word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have you ever heard the expression that many hands make light work? Normally when there's work to do and no volunteers, there's an encouragement from others from uh, the sidelines to help those that make the project go along a little quicker. Usually the next step after this retort is uh, to be voluntold to be helped on out. Now, in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospels, the disciples have been moved from the sidelines to participate in the action. They're now going to participate in the kingdom work. As Jesus sends out his 12, he understands that many hands make light work. And for him now, it's been just him working. But now we see, as we explore our theme this morning, as we examine scriptures, Jesus sends the 12 on an evangelistic mission. And we'll look at this at four points. The mission briefing, mission success, point three, the mission report, and our last point, number four, rest from the mission. When Jesus first called the disciples, he was preaching by the lake. And the men there were doing a lot of fishing, but not a lot of catching. Jesus instructed them to let down their nets, and they pulled their nets up with fish filling their nets, so much so that the, they could not pull the nets into the boat. 
And then it was Simon Peter that fell to the ground and asked Jesus to depart from him because he was a sinful man. But what did Jesus say to him? Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. See, until this moment, the twelve had no unique function within the ministry of Jesus Christ. They have observed Christ as he's worked. In Luke 8, 1, it says that the disciples were with Christ as he went through the cities proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. But now, the disciples are about to reach a new stage. They're going from observers to partaking in kingdom work. But before Jesus sends these men out on their mission, he equips them with power and with authority. See, Jesus' credentials were power and authority, so much so that the crowds would marvel. What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So Jesus extends to the twelve power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And you might wonder, what, what degree did Jesus extend this power and authority Is it everything that Jesus had that now the disciples have as well? Or is it still a power and authority, but maybe just tailored a little bit to the apostles? You can think of it maybe as a firearm. that We can claim that we all have a firearm, but the caliber of the ammunition will distinguish how effective it is. And we cannot know the extent of the power and authority, but use But in the same chapter of verse 40, the disciples could not cast out a demon. Now, was this because they lacked the same caliber as Jesus Christ, or was it not enough faith to use the power and authority properly? This would be no different from giving a high-caliber rifle to a small-caliber boy. He cannot wield the firearm properly if he does not have the proper strength to handle the weapon. So is it the same with the apostles? I think it's more proper to wrestle with that question a little bit later at the appropriate time when we reach verse 40. What we do know is that Jesus not only equipped them with power and authority to cast out demons and heal the sick, but another part of their mission was to proclaim the kingdom of God. And the form of Jesus' ministry was that of word and deed. The proclamation of the kingdom of God was important to Jesus. He says this about his ministry, that he must preach the kingdom of God to other towns. For Jesus was sent for this very purpose, it says in Luke 4, verse 43. So Jesus was sent to proclaim the kingdom of God no longer was at the time of promise, but the time of fulfillment. He was calling sinners to repentance. That was long ago promised, would be fulfilled. The head of Satan would be crushed. Salvation has arrived. The hope of God's rule to heal both souls and bodies. So as the twelve have seen Jesus do, they were to go and do likewise. But before they could go on their mission, Jesus gives them further instructions on what to take for their journey. And the packing list for the disciples, is pretty minimal. Jesus says, take nothing for your journey. And this wasn't a suggestion by Jesus to his disciples, but it was an imperative, a command. And just in case the 12 didn't really understand what nothing meant, 
he says, he goes on and further elaborates. He says, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. Now at this point you might be thinking, well, that's a bit harsh. But think, it's more of a lesson. See, Jesus is teaching them about two things. The dependence upon God and about poverty. With what seems to be an insufficient packing list, Jesus reminds the twelve clearly and plainly that they are only prepared for their mission when they depend upon God. And it might be a painful painful lesson, but Jesus shows them their need to depend on him. This means going where he sends. It means despite lacking materials or sparse information, they are to go. And they are to depend upon God for what they need. They need to trust God. God. With minimal equipment, Jesus is teaching them about a dependence upon him, but also not to rely on material wealth. He's teaching them about poverty, that the mission of healing and proclaiming the kingdom of God is not done for financial gain. The kingdom of God is, a matter, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, and of joy in the Holy Spirit internal things that will never perish. Poverty cannot take these things away from you. And it was in Peter's instructions to others, as Peter explains in his epistle in 1 Peter. They're not to shepherd the flock out of shameful gain. This mission is not about gold for their pockets. It's about compassion and helping others. It's not about establishing friends in high places, but comforting the poor in spirit. And having briefed the twelve on a dependency upon God and poverty, Jesus briefed the twelve on accommodations, informed them about where they should stay. See, Jesus knows what life is like on the road. He was introduced in an infancy, laid in a manger. There was no place, no room for him in the inn. And this was just a short stay before he was off to Egypt, fleeing from Herod the Great. And into his ministry, Jesus explains, for the foxes have holes, yet the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Jesus knows what life is like on the road. So Jesus, again, is not suggesting but commanding the twelve. He said, come and go from one home as they go about preaching and healing. They're not to bounce around to different accommodations. And this makes sense if they're learning about a dependency on God and, pro- and poverty. See, it defeats the purpose if they're seeking worldly comforts from the different places that they could be staying. As well, staying at one home doesn't dishonor their host. After instructing the disciples on how to act when they are received, Jesus gives instructions about what they should do when they're rejected. Again, this is not a suggestion from Jesus, but another imperative, another command. Do this. And the command might sound quite peculiar to our ears today. Why are they to shake off the dust from their feet? See, when the Jews traveled outside to Palestine, they were commanded to shake themselves free of the dust from returning to Israel. Least they pollute the holy land, as one commentator points out. 
It was a rebuke. It was a, a sharp judgment against the inhospitable Jewish villages that the twelve encountered. And Paul and Barnabas later on repeated the same practice in Acts 13. So with power and authority and the gospel message, as well as being fully briefed for their mission, the twelve are sent by Christ through the villages, healing and preaching everywhere. And if we stop to think and meditate on this mission, on the, 12, on the mission of the 12 disciples, we can see the shepherd-like leadership of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus demonstrated a word and deed ministry to the 12, and now after seeing him in action, they will partake in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The 12 get a mock or trial run of what they will be doing in future ministry. What they're experiencing now will be the ministry we read about in the Acts of the Apostles. And Christ shows his leadership by the foresight and the preparation for the disciples. And lastly, by Christ's leading as an example. See, Jesus knows the future. He knows what will take place in the future of the apostles. He knows that he will not be with them bodily for much longer. Coming up in Luke's narrative, Jesus foretells his death and sets his face towards Jerusalem. See, Jesus looks into the future in his preparation for the twelve because they will be the future leaders who carry the gospel message. See, Jesus does not wait till he's ascended into heaven before they get practical hands-on experience. It happens now in preparation for what is to come. And not only did Jesus have foresight, but he was an example to the disciples. They have witnessed Jesus' teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And they have seen him heal. And remember, the examples that we have are what's been recorded for us in Scripture. The Gospel of John says that there are many things that Jesus did, and if all of them are written down, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So the twelve have been exposed to many examples of Christ carrying out his ministry. But as good as having a plan is with foresight and demonstrating exactly how that should go, it is also helpful if the twelve get hands-on experience. See, Jesus not only gives the twelve power and authority accompanied by information that will be helpful to the disciples, but they're put in practical scenarios. They get to go out and partake in ministry. They get to hear the cries and the concerns of the people. They get to experience poverty and trust in God for their provisions. They'll face hospitality. They'll face rejection. They get to preach to the people and experience healing and casting out demons. Jesus gives them a mission that prepares them for the greater mission, that great commission. And Christ similarly leads you On your Christian pilgrimage, you probably have been put in scenarios, small mock or trial runs, that gave you wisdom and experience to help you through further trials and tribulations that you have faced. But this wisdom is only gained if we are sober-minded, that we meditate and think about Christ. Think about your Christian pilgrimage as you seek God in prayer and guidance for wisdom. Because if you neglect to think or meditate or self-examine on your Christian pilgrimage, you'll stumble over the same rock, you'll stumble over the same route. 
Self-reflect. Why is God putting me in this situation? How can I grow from this? What am I being taught? How will this strengthen my faith? See, Jesus Christ is our chief shepherd. He knows how to lead his sheep because he knows exactly what they are and what they need. He knows how to motivate them and encourage them. What they need to grow in their faith. And just like Christ leads the twelve, preparing them for kingdom work, Christ leads and prepares you for your kingdom work. And when Christ is guiding, success is a guarantee. As we see the news about Christ reaches the ears of Herod. We read in verse 7 that Herod heard all that was happening and there was a buzz about what was happening. But there's also conflicting reports from the crowds. And with all this confusion and conflicting reports, the main theme is, who is Jesus? And even John was confused about this question, if you remember. He sends his disciples to ask him a question. Are you the one to come, or should we look for another? The question is asked through chapter 9. So we investigate chapter 9, the common theme. Who is Jesus? Now the crowds in Herod are the first to get to try to answer this question. And the crowds have an opinion of who Jesus Christ is. And there's three main views. There's John the Baptist is raised from the dead. Elijah has appeared. Or another prophet of old has risen. Now, the report of Jesus being Elijah clearly illustrates that Jesus is from God. But it's hard to determine if the crowd believed that Jesus was the promised prophet of Malachi's prophecy or if the crowds identified Jesus as Elijah because he was the prophet of the eschaton. Now, the crowds all consider, also considered Jesus a risen prophet from the old. Identifying Jesus as a prophet places proper respect to who Jesus is. If you remember in Luke 7, 11 through uh, 17, after Jesus raises the widow's son, fear seized the crowd and confessed that a great prophet has risen among them. And this report spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So as Christ as a prophet spread throughout the country, and Christ holds the office of prophet, but he was not a risen prophet of old. Next opinion was that he was of John, raised from the dead. And now this is the first time we hear of John the Baptist since he sent his disciples to Jesus. And all of a sudden we read that John has risen from the dead. But how did he die? Well, Luke informs us that Herod beheaded John. So you can understand that of, out of all the possibilities, John being raised from the dead would probably be the most troubling to Herod. And rightly so. How would he have seen, I mean, rightly so, Herod would have seen the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Remember, it was at the instigation of Heroditus through her daughter that asked for the head of John on the platter. And now Herod was looking for a way to kill John, but he feared the people because they believed John was a prophet. And rightly so he was. So when this report reached Herod's ear, you can imagine that amount of fear he's probably filled with. 
It wouldn't be too far to guess that it took a few extra guards surrounding his palace for him to have a good night's sleep. Whether it be from the people rising up against him or maybe John looking for revenge. And it makes you think, did Herod believe that this problem ended with John? But we know that God does not leave himself without a witness. But Herod's filled also with curiosity. He says, Who then is this I hear such things about? And he sought to see him. And this question is similar to the question that was asked by the disciples after Jesus calmed the storm. They said this about Jesus. Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Who is this Jesus? See, Herod tried, desired to see Jesus and in Luke 23, 8 informs us that Herod was glad to see Jesus when he finally got the chance he longed to see him. But in that report, there's no desire to hear what Jesus was saying, only to see a sign performed by Jesus. So when Jesus kept silent, Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Herod did not want to open up his ears to the words of Christ. He didn't want to hear it and hold fast with an honest and faithful heart. And the stony heart of Jesus' day is the same stony heart of the people today. I bet if you were to ask people today if they would want to see Jesus, there would be the same eagerness for some as Herod. But it would not be to hear what Christ has to say, to grasp onto his words with an honest and good heart, but to see some kind of sign to make Jesus do some kind of a trick for them. Jesus to them is not their king. He's not their savior, but just a historical figure. There would be no reverence for him, no, just contempt and mocking. And as you walk through your Christian pilgrimage, you can ask the same question as Herod, and you should ask, who then is this? Who is Jesus? What do your words and actions tell others about who Jesus is to you? See, is Christ to you only a means to be justified and reconciled before the Father? And after that, you don't need him again till you see him in heaven? As if to say Christ has done his work and now it's my turn. Christ did half of the puzzle and now my work is the other half, which put together equals salvation. Or maybe Christ is just a means of justification and reconciliation and you do not need to conform to the image of Christ. In his likeness and his holiness, because grace abounds. So you do not need to put sin to death. So Christ is merely a get out of jail free card, a scan card, or a key fob for the gates of heaven. Who is Christ? What are your actions and your words saying about Christ? Is Christ king? Is he your savior and your Lord? Is he your master? Is Christ perplexing to you? Because the more you read about him, the more you meditate on him and pray, the more you become overwhelmed because you don't know anything about him. Who is this that would love a sinner like me? 
Who's this that showed his love for me in perfect obedience so that he could offer himself as a ransom for my sins? Who is Jesus? Someone you put your faith in? Is he someone you seek to be strengthened by? Is he someone who you seek for guidance or love to commune with? See, Jesus Christ is someone to everyone. And he'll either be your judge or he will be your Lord and your Savior. See, the disciples were caused quite a stir and the reports of Jesus Christ found their way to Herod. And Herod and the crowds are left with the question of who Jesus is. And we can assume that for the disciples' first mission that it was a success. We read from our text in verse 10, the disciples returned to Christ and they report on their mission. The details of the mission must be a level of clearance above our pay grade because we are not privy to them. But it's more likely that Luke did not deem them necessary to include them. So we're not told how long the mission was or how many towns they visited or kilometers that they had to walk or how many people they healed and from what diseases they were healed from or if there are any demons that they had to cast out and what was the hospitality like. Were the people eager to invite them in? How many towns did the disciples have to shake off the dust from their feet? How many people were receptive to their preaching? So you know details are given. But what happens after the report is provided to Jesus may indicate that they were busy because they received rest from their mission. Now Jesus hears the reports from the disciples and they are on the move and they withdraw to Bethsaida. Now Bethsaida was the hometown of Philip, of Andrew and Peter as a town on the shores of Galilee. And what is most interesting about this move is the word withdraw. And the group's movements indicates for them to retire. See, was it Jesus' intent for the disciples to get some rest? Because the same word in the Greek New Testament is found in Luke 5.16, where Jesus withdraws from the crowds to pray. We're not sure if Jesus Christ intended to go with the disciples away to pray, but the word that Luke chose to describe the action indicates that they were offered some kind of rest. And this seemed short-lived because the crowds learned of their location and they followed. Yet this does not stop Jesus from speaking to them about the kingdom of God and healing. The crowds come to Christ and it's been his practice. He welcomes them and speaks to them about the kingdom of God and cure those who need healing. And interestingly, Jesus gave the disciples power and authority over demons and diseases and they could speak about the kingdom of God. Yet there's no report of the 12 leading lending a hand. Now this is a perfect time to show Jesus how they worked how they cast out demons, how they healed, how they proclaimed the kingdom of God. But rather, it is Jesus doing the work because he knows the rhythm of work and rest. So who is Jesus? Is he a harsh master who does not understand the work that you are doing? 
Is he someone who cannot sympathize with you that you're tired and in need of rest? This is not, this is not the Christ that's depicted here. He gave the disciples work and then he gave them the rest. We see Christ laboring now, not the disciples. And even more so, Jesus has given us rest in the most significant way. Christ worked while he's here on earth, doing the will of the Father in heaven in perfect obedience, doing what Adam failed to do without sin and without blemish. And he submitted to death on the cross as a propitiation for our sins. His blood was shed for our sins. And now we're reconciled to God the Father. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the Father where he sits at the right hand of the Father and he rested. And just as Christ rose and entered rest, so is true for the people of God. For those who confess Christ as their Lord and Master and those who labor for him in his kingdom, they too will follow the same pattern as Jesus Christ. They will conquer death and they will enter into eternal rest. Now understand that eternity feels so far away, that the days seem so long, that you're tired, that you roll out of bed, and there's no get-up to go today. It feels like you're stuck in neutral. Your engine is revving, but you're not getting anywhere. The days seem so long. Then the world shines and it glows. And the things of the world start looking like rest. Brothers and sisters, don't make the same mistake as Esau. Do not trade your birthright for a bowl of lentils. Do not trade fool's gold for actual gold. Do not trade an everlasting rest for a temporal one. Don't trade what has been fashioned by God for something so glorious that no eye has seen, no mind has ever imagined, for something created by human hands. There's a heavenly rest that awaits for you. But for now, you work. And there's only two employers. It's either the law or it's grace. Are you working under the law in that heavy yoke? Or have you come to Christ and received grace in his light yoke? And just as the text shows us, Christ is the most capable leader. He's not demanding back-to-back shifts or 20-hour work days. Who was the one working when the disciples came back? See, Christ withdrew with them, and Christ was the one working. Christ understands you. He knows the limitations of the body because he had a human body himself. He knows what tiredness feels like and when it's a good time for rest. Remember, Jesus Christ is our rest. Do you come to him when you're tired? Are you finding rest in him? He's your rest now and for your future in eternity. Or are you turning to the things of the world? If five minutes was all you needed to recharge your battery, what is charging it? Is it the reading of God's word, meditating on his glory and seeking him in prayer? Realize that you get to converse with the God of the universe who has so much power that he spoke everything into existence. 
A God with so much wisdom that he created the intricacies of the human body, the complexity of the eye. You have the privilege to commune with God by the power of the Spirit through Jesus Christ. It's just amazing. Are you trying to find your rest in what God forbids? What commandment are you breaking as you try to find rest? Calvin says the human heart is like an idol factory. So maybe for you it's drugs or alcohol or food or entertainment, sports, music, and lust. But when you create these idols for yourself, have you ever felt rest? But you convince yourself that it's what you need to refresh and recharge. But has that ever worked? Have you ever felt refreshed and recharged when you partake in what God forbids? Has being apart from Christ ever given you rest? Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is Christ? So far in chapter 9, we see that Christ is the one who equips you. He's the one that informs you. He's the one that sends you. He's the one that gives you work to do. And he's the one that gives you rest here and for eternity in heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you especially for what we have read and meditated on here today. Thank you that for the evangelistic message of the apostles that they could go forth and that now too we have the opportunity to carry in our minds, in our hearts, the words of the kingdom of God that we may partake in kingdom work. And we thank you so much that you know us, that you know where we fall short, Lord, but you know where we need strengthening. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who understands the work and rest ratio, Father. That you give us work to do, but you also know, know when we need rest, we need strength. And may you continue to cultivate in our hearts the desire to seek you for that rest, to keep the things of the world away from us, and though they are not restful, but that we will only rest when we are engrafted and have union with Christ. So it's through his name that we pray all these things. Amen.